Well, hello everybody. It's lovely to come along and to share a word of testimony. Um, I'll just have these wee things marked out here. Now, it's lovely to come along and share a word of testimony with you, and thank you very much for asking. Uh, I'd like to just start off by reading a few verses, if this is okay, in Psalm 139. I'm reading from Psalm 139, from verse 13 through to 18. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. And the second we reading is two verses in Isaiah 55. And I'm reading to you verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I know that God will bless his precious word until our hearts here this evening. Well, uh, it's lovely. It's, it's some years, I'm sure it's over 20 years from we stood in this ground here. Uh, I think it was in your old, older building, obviously. And uh, this is lovely to come the night here to your new hall. Um, as I say, it was a long time ago. But, you know, your testimony never changes. And uh, your, your testimony is personal to you. Um, I'd start off by saying I came from the village of Dollingstown. Now, if you were going through Lurgan, your next station would be Dollingstown and on to Moira if you wanted to go there for a wee shopping trip. But I was brought up in a home where I had four brothers and two sisters. And from an early age, we were taken along to Sunday school. And at that Sunday school, we were taught the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and taught that if one day we were to be in heaven, well, we would have to know the Lord as our own and personal saviour. I can thank God for this upbringing because I never toiled with any other idea other than knowing if I'm to be in heaven someday, I would have to have the Lord in my heart. I continued on in Sunday school and this night there was to be a meeting and it was to be held in the village of Moira. The preacher that evening was Hadley Murphy and Hadley was preaching on the second coming of the Lord. I remember going along to the meeting with my mother and father and my sister and I remember I wasn't really given a lot of attention to what the preacher was saying until it came to nearly the last of a sermon. And he said, tell me, who out of you all would be ready to go home if the Lord Jesus Christ was to come to the doors right now? Who all would be ready to go home to be with him? Well, you know, I'd often wondered what would it be like for God to convict you of your sins? Would there be some flashing lights or some thundering in the sky? But you know, every one of us, God speaks to us through our conscience. And that night he spoke to me through mine. You see, he brought before me times in Sunday school where I had been taught that I needed to be saved. 
And the atmosphere in the meeting right now at that time was just as if the Lord was going to return within a matter of moments. And you know, I remember as we all stood to sing when the roll is called up yonder, in tears and brokenness I began to cry. And I said, Lord, please don't come yet, I'm not ready. And you know, just with that, I can remember my sister standing beside me and she looked at me and she said to me, Phyllis, straighten yourself up, we'll be out of here in a minute or two. But I says, no, Gloria, before I leave here tonight, I want to get saved. And you know, that night I can remember um, staying behind and Hadley opened up the scriptures to me and showed me from the word of God. That night I asked the Lord Jesus into my heart. I repented of my sins and asked him to come into my heart and to save me. And you know, from that night until now, I have never, ever regretted that moment. To my shame, there's been many times where I have failed God and failed him miserably, but he has never failed me. Well, some few months after that night, I met up with who's now my husband, Hartford. And uh, it's a bit of a long story, but Hartford came from a family where there was three boys in his house and three girls. But uh, one of them was very fond, or two of them was very fond of stockyard racing. But uh, without keeping his hair to the morning, when Hartford used to come round to our house on a Saturday night, and some of my brothers would all go over to pour it down. But this night he decided to ask me out instead. So that was the start of Hartford and I going out with each other. We weren't going out that long till I told him about this meeting in Moira and how that I had got saved. And I used to say to him, you know, did you ever think about getting saved? And he used to say to me, ah, your time enough about all that. You can think about that whenever you're going to die. And I used to say, well, maybe you could tell me when that is. But we continued to go out with each other. And there was many nights that Hartford left me home and I got down on my two knees at the side of the bed. And I would pray that God would save Hartford. I prayed that God would give me opportunity to bring him along to church or to a meeting where Hartford would understand that he needed to be saved. These opportunities came and they went and Hartford still felt, well, he was good. He was a good person and he wouldn't have done anyone any harm and he felt that God was a good God. So however we continue to go out with each other, we were engaged in 1981 uh, and then we got married in 1983. Isn't that right, Hartford? (laughs) Keep me right with my date, sorry. Uh, we got engaged and then got married in 1983. Now, we weren't any different than any other young couple in that we wanted to start up home and to have a family. Hartford from this family of six and me from a family of seven. Well, we were very fond of children. And in 1984, we had our first son, Thomas. Thomas was very like Hartford to look at, but I have to say he took his mother's weight after him because, ladies, he was nearly 12 pound weight whenever he was born. There was that much joy that day in the Lagan Valley Hospital where we had Thomas and uh, we were just so excited and the nurses were even joking and saying that they were coming to measure this big fella for a school bag that he was ready for school. And while other children was finding it hard, maybe getting two or three ounces into them, Thomas was always going into a second bottle from newborn. But you know, the joy and excitement was amazing. We were married and living down in Hartford's mum and dad's home down a lane about a mile long and I remember Hartford having everything ready at home, the sterilizer, the wee white vest, everything was just sitting to perfection and the fire was lit. It was that hot I thought the chimney was going to crack but the excitement was great. At that particular time my sister and I had been expecting to gather. She had had a wee boy and I had had this wee girl and, or sorry, she had a wee girl, I had this boy, a big boy, and uh, 
well, one day out at her house in Dremore, uh, the two of us fed the children and changed them and just let them lie and kick on the floor. But this was the first time that I had a chance to compare two children of a similar age. I can remember looking and I could clearly see a difference in Carolyn compared to Thomas. Now, the description I would give you is that Thomas just would seem to be quite lax in his movement. He would throw his arm out and maybe throw this one out. And about a minute or two before he'd get them up again. But Carolyn was so firm. Carolyn's wee fists, you could have seen the whites in the knuckles and the room light was on and you could have seen Carolyn like looking at the light in the room where Thomas wasn't really interested. I remember that day saying to Heather, did she think there was anything wrong with Thomas? And with tears in her eyes, she says to me, Phyllis, you know that mummy has had seven of us and she would like that you'd take Thomas along to the doctor and have him examined and see is everything okay. I remember gathering Thomas up and coming home to the yard. Hartford was up the lane cutting the hedges with his father. And I remember saying, Hartford, we'll need to take Thomas down to the doctor and Moira. I think there's something wrong. And as Hartford looked into the back of the car, there was Thomas just lying in the wee carry cot, but he was just lying sleeping. And Hartford says, oh, there's not a thing wrong. I'm sure he's great. But, you know, at five o'clock, we went down to the Moira surgery and we had him examined. And the doctor that time was a big tall man and he's over six foot. And I remember him uh, as he examined Thomas, he said, you know, there's not a thing wrong with that big fella. Take him home and love him and look after him. You know what's wrong with you young ones? You start to look for defects in these children. And he says, just you take him home and look after him. But you know, Hartford and I didn't sleep too good that night. And the next morning we were back on the doctor's doorstep, insistent on a second opinion. An appointment was set up two weeks later, and there we met in the uh, uh, Lagan Valley with a doctor that had delivered Thomas some few months back. That day we went into the room, and I can remember him saying, now Mr. and Mrs. Arnold, how's things? He says, you know, I've been expecting both of you's back. Oh, I said, is this the normal when you have a baby? You bring him back and let the doctor see how he's getting on. He says, not really, he said, you see, when Thomas was born, we could see that there was that much joy and excitement with you both. He says, we actually took a meeting and we decided that it would be best that you would bring Thomas home and realize for yourselves that something was wrong. And I says, well, you know, what, what do you mean here? And he says, look, Thomas's muscle tone at birth was quite poor compared to a normal child. And he says, we really did put this down to Thomas's weight. And he says, really, until tests are taken out over a period of a week in the Royal, we'll really not know what it is that Thomas has or how we're going to cope or, or, or you know, look after him. I remember we were going to the Royal and having these uh, tests taken. The final test was taken on the Thursday, and it was a CAT scan on Thomas's wee brain. And on the Friday morning, we were brought into a small office. This time, a lady doctor sat us down. I can remember Hartford having sitting beside me, and while well, Thomas was lying in a carry cot on the floor, there was two or three toys that kicked out onto the floor where he had kicked them out earlier. And I remember the lady doctor coming into the room, and she had this big pink file with her, and she was holding it in her arms, and then she set it down on the table. And I remember lifting her glasses and setting them down and she just looked at Hartford and me and she says, Hartford and Phyllis, she says, there's really no easy way that I have of saying this to you. But she said yesterday Thomas had a CAT scan on his brain 
And she lifted up her thumb and she says, Phyllis, it's on the cerebellum part of his brain. It just is no bigger than your thumbnail and it sits in here at the back of your neck. And with Thomas, this is fractionally smaller. And as a result, Thomas will neither walk or talk or sit up on it. And, you know, the best description that I can give to you is is someone putting a knife in your stomach and beginning to turn it very slowly. There was like a sickness come over me and just I just did, I just cried and I through these floods of tears. I could see Hartford grabbing the two handles of the carry cot and as he threw the toys into the bottom of it, he was like nudging me with his knee as much as to say, come on, I've heard enough, it's time we're out of here. But under these floods of tears, I heard her say that there would be an appointment set up at Craig Avenue Hospital and in the child development clinic, we would take Thomas along and we would have him exercised. And she says, Phyllis, dear knows how he'll come on. And she says, you'll see a change in him, even if he mixes with other children. Well, you know, we got home that day. I remember, I'll never forget the day leaving the roundabout at the Royal. And even though it's not there anymore, I'm quite sure that every day there's people like us has just received bad news. And as we turned that roundabout and headed straight for Donna Cloney, I can remember we weren't saying anything to each other. And Thomas was lying exhausted in the carry cot in the back of the car. And I began to try and piece together as to why this all would be. And you know, I can remember as a young child sitting in a Sunday school class on a form. I can remember how the Sunday school teacher would have preached to us and have told us that if ever we were saved, it was best we would marry someone else that was saved. And the Bible teaches that you're not to be unequally yoked. Well, you know, it was amazing that I began to try and work this all out myself. And in my heart, I was saying, surely the Sunday school teacher was right. Phyllis, you give your heart to the Lord. You promised to faithfully serve him. And some few months later, you would marry someone that wasn't saved. And you know, instead of, at that time in my life, instead of asking God just to come home with us and just to help us through this, I honestly began to doubt that there was a God. How could there be a God would do this to Thomas? To him that had come into this world and done no one any harm. And I have to say, I began to feel weak about God. or And my attitude really changed. It was just like, you know, we'll sort this out. And we'll, we'll get Thomas up and going again. And Lord, more or less, we don't need you. But you see, whenever God brings you into the corridor, and you're sitting there with your child, and you look around at other mothers with their children, there was many days that I had to pray and thank God for what he had given to us. You know, as we watched Thomas develop, it was amazing how at that child development clinic, how he began to react to some of the toys and the sounds, how he began to firm up his wee neck, and we would do different exercises with him, and we actually could see a change in him. And it was all for the better. But one thing we seen was Thomas loved company. And in my heart of hearts, I just thought, we'll fill this house with we brothers and sisters for Thomas. So in 1985, I was expecting again. And this time, we had a second son. And we called him Ford, short for Hartford. He was called after his granda, believe it or not. And I can remember how that uh, Ford... Shortly after he was born, I can remember Dr. Wallace this time coming to the side of the bed in Craigavon. 
I remember him saying to Hartford and I, you both have a lovely boy and he's as strong as a bull. That was his words. I remember how he, he, he laid Ford down in the bed in front of me and he took his two fingers and he put them into Ford's wee hands and from Ford was laying down and from a laying down stage Ford began to lift his head up and hold it for a second and then drop it again. Now for a newborn that was amazing and that was normal to be able to bring your head up to a holding position and then just drop it. Thomas was now 14 months old and if I laid Thomas flat on the floor Thomas's head just lagged behind and there we could see the change. But you know, until we brought Ford home, it was amazing, the bigger change again in Thomas, how he enjoyed 24 hours round the clock company. Ford was always there running about, giving him a toy. As Ford began to tumble into nearly a year, Ford was running about and bringing things to Thomas, and he absolutely loved him. And all the noises and different theme tunes, he was, Thomas was daft about the theme tunes on East Enders. He always recognised that. And not that I would have ever even time to watch it, but even an interest, but I know he loved the tune. So I always made sure it was on and he could listen to it. In 1986, I was expecting again. And this time we had a third son. Now in the nine months that I was expecting, I never worried once as to how this baby would be. My attitude, and maybe Hartford's too, was we'll just fill this house with three brothers and sisters and it'll be really good for Thomas. Shortly after coming out of anaesthetic, Hartford at one side, I can remember saying, and coming, I was coming out of anaesthetic and I could hear Hartford saying, Ma, we've had another wee boy. Well, this just pleased him no end because he was as red as anything, real ginger hair, where Thomas and Ford had been blonde. And he says, Ma, you want to see his hair? It's really red. And it was just with that that the first time, obviously, I asked the question, is everything okay? And it was with that that Dr. Wallace grabbed my other hand. He squeezed it tight and he shrugged his shoulders. And he says, no, Phyllis, he said, this has happened again. Well, you know, I can only speak for myself. You know, it's amazing in life. Even you turn on that television and you look at tragedies all over the world. How come it's God that we blame? He's the first one that we come, it comes into your mind. God, why did you let that happen? And you know, I was no different. It was God that I blamed. And I really believed in my heart that Hartford and I had done some great wrong and that God was going to make us sit up, that God was punishing us. But you know, we brought Wensley home and uh, we were told that he would have to go some of these tests that Thomas had. And within a short time, they were able to tell us that he too was like Thomas and that both of these children would probably have a short life expectancy. We were to be careful as to where we brought them, not bring them in and out of crowded shopping centres and be careful of anyone with colds or flu. Our lives just seemed to revolve around doctors and nurses but we couldn't have done without them. And indeed, over the years, they became very great friends, even to this day. Well, you know, there was many times, as I looked out now, and Granda would have called, and he would have lifted Ford, and Ford was running from room to room, but Granda would have took him by the hand and, and fed the, the, the geese out in the yard with five geese, and he used to give them bread. 
But as I looked out and Ford was getting all this treatment and Ford was getting a ride in Granda's big blue Ford tractor and I looked back on the living room floor and, well, Thomas and Wensley could do nothing. They could never do this. But you know, there was one way that I had of settling my mind. I really believed that God had truthfully blessed us and even blessed Thomas. It was the company of Wensley. And it would have taken you to have lived in our home to see the both of them together, how they loved each other. And even though they never ever spoke, they had a way of communicating, a private way that nobody, none of us knew. Well, we lived our lives of just coming and going, and as I say, back and forward and exercising with the children. But it was on a Sunday and Thomas took the cold. I thought it was like any other time that normally you get the doctor, she'll sound his chest, she'll either prescribe a bottle or else she'll suggest he goes into hospital. And under a wee drop of medication on the oxygen tent, well, he would breathe in this moist air and the oxygen, whatever, and then he would have been ready for home within two or three days. So on Sunday we brought him in and stayed with him till late on Sunday evening. Early on the Monday morning I got Wensley and Ford sorted out and I went into the hospital. And I remember whenever and then the nurse said to me, look fellas, I can't get Thomas to eat this morning, not take his breakfast or he won't drink for me. And she says, we're going to get an x-ray later on. The doctor wants an x-ray with him. Later on in the afternoon, Hartford come up and then they eventually got an x-ray for him. And then the doctor come and brought the news to us that Thomas' two lungs was white with pneumonia. And there was nothing that they could really do. They would give him medication, but it was quite bad. Now, as we sat with Thomas through Monday night and through into the early hours of Tuesday morning, I could see that Thomas was getting very weak. Now, Thomas was nearing his sixth birthday. He was a big boy. At the time he was born, we never thought he'd live even to see his first birthday. But God blessed us with nearly six years. You see, at three o'clock in the afternoon, God sent an angel to speak to me. And I call these people angels. And in your journey of life, you will meet angels as well. And this lady was called Mavis Brush. And she was a lovely sister in Three North and Craig Avon. I can remember her coming in through the door. She had her two hands behind her back. But I knew by the look on Mavis's face that she had been crying. And she says to me, Phyllis, I'm going off duty now. And I'm going home to pray for Hartford and you that God will be with you and whatever you have to come through. She says, today, Phyllis, I felt drawn of the Lord to bring you a poem. And I hope that you'll read it and that you'll understand that God is speaking to you. Tell me, is there anything I can do for you before I go? I said, yes, Mavis. We brought Thomas in here on Sunday. It's now Tuesday and I would really love to nurse him. And she said, no problem with that. She took off just a simple few wee monitors that was on him. And Hartford and her got him comfortable in my arms. And well, as I sat there with Thomas, he had lovely blonde hair and I used to cut it all spiked. It was just soaking in sweat. You couldn't have told the definite line of his lip, he was so white. And I remember Mavis putting her arms around the two of us and she just handed me the poem and then she left. The poem is called... To all parents, I lend you for a little while a child of mine, he said, for you to love while he lives and mourn when he is dead. 
It may be six or seven years or twenty-two or three, but will you till I call him back, take care of him for me? He will bring his charms to gladden you, and should his day be brief, you'll have his lovely memories as solace for your grief. I cannot promise he will stay as all from earth return, but there are lessons taught down there I want this child to learn. I have looked the wide world over in my search for teachers true, and from the throngs that crowd life's lanes I have selected you. Now will you give him all your love, not think the labour vain, nor hate me when I come to call to take him back again? I fancied that I heard them say, Dear Lord, thy will be done, for all the joy this child shall bring, will the risk of grief will run. We will shower him with tenderness and love him while we may, and for the happiness we have known forever grateful stay. And should the angels call for him much sooner than we planned, we'll brave the bitter grief to come and try to understand. I can remember we sat with Thomas back into bed again about ten minutes to five, and Thomas just gave a wee sigh, and he went home to be with the Lord. Well, I I just couldn't begin to describe the presence of God in the room in the ward that day. And, you know, all was in our head was to get Thomas home. And I can remember all the stops were pulled out at Craig Avon Hospital, so to make that happen. And uh, Thomas was brought home about nine o'clock. I can remember in my ears I can still hear the drone of the hearse reversing up till the front door. We lived in a bungalow. We were only in it a year whenever this all happened. And I remember Thomas coming home. Well, you know, whenever I went through the front door that evening, there was a crowd in our house. All was there to give a hand. As I looked, young Ford was running from room to room. And whenever I looked in the carpet on the floor in the hall, there was just a light on and over Wensley's head. You could see again the red hair of him. And he was just rolling about on the floor. I remember gathering him up and going in and just I lay down on top of the bed and I cried to him and I told him that your wee playmate is away home to heaven. Well, you know, Wensley reacted just like he always would have done. There was many times they would have seen me crying and I used to take their hands and rub them in my tears and I'd say to them, you've ever known much I've cried for you. But the reaction was always just laughing back at you. More or less, Mommy, would you not be so silly and quit that crying? And that night was no different. Well, you see, Thomas's funeral was on the Thursday, and it was late, really, on the Tuesday night that we had brought Thomas home, that the doctor suggested that Wensley should be taken to hospital, and that he'd be well looked after, and let family and friends be with us over the funeral. After the funeral was over, we headed straight back to Craig Avon. And it was there that day that God spoke to me through a track that someone had left on the locker. You see, that day, whenever we went up to the hospital, it was the first time that we seen Wensley trying to stand. His wee legs was shaking, and boy, was he proud of himself as he looked at me and Hartford. And we thought a complete miracle had taken place. I remember sitting down, and well, where you were sitting in 3 North was near the nurse's station. And if you looked at the first room on the right, well, that's where Thomas had died, and that's where he had come out of just two or three days earlier. 
I remember sitting questioning God and I said, Lord, is this why you give us two of them? That you take away one and leave us with the other? But you know, there was no answers until I turned round and I looked on the locker and someone had simply left a wee track. And I looked at it and it was Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. And I read those words that for my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. And unknown to Hartford and I, God, had a plan that had to be fulfilled in the days that lay ahead. We were told that Wensley was ready for home, only whenever we were ready to bring him home. Well, Sunday for us was always a family day where there was usually no doctors or nurses involved. So we said we'd bring him home on Sunday. Because whenever I looked out that evening after Thomas's funeral, there was a heavy fog out over the car park in Craig Avon. All you could see was just orange lights. You couldn't see the cars below. Now that would not be a good time to bring Thomas or Wensley outside in the fog when all the germs were down. So we said we'll bring him home on Sunday. We continued to be with him on Friday and Saturday. And early Sunday morning we went in with a bag of clothes. But you know, I couldn't believe when I looked at Wensley. He was as white as the driven snow and it was not like him. And the doctor at his side said, Phyllis, Wensley, he's not at himself and he's not eating and he's not drinking. We'll have to get a drip up with him. And I'd just like to take him off for a chest x-ray. Well, later that day they brought us the results back to tell us that he too had taken this feral pneumonia and that both of his wee lungs was clouded over white. Well, we sat with Wensley through Monday and Tuesday and God sent another angel to speak to me in the form of a man called Norrie Emerson. Norrie said he'd been working in the yard and he said, Phyllis, I can't get hard for the new out of my head. And he says, I wanted to come over and pray with you. And he says, Phyllis, I have a wee poem and I'd love to give it to you. And he says, Phyllis, I hope that you'll understand. And he says, you know, Phyllis, God's ways is the best ways. He says it's hard to take, but he says God knows what he's doing. This is the last poem that I have with me, because it is through this poem that I come back to know the Lord. The story is, the story is told of a shepherd wise who, when the day was done, needed to cross a stream to get home. He led, but the sheep wouldn't come. So he gently turned to the flock once more, knowing that this was best. He stooped and lifted the tiniest lamb, holding it safe on his breast. While he waded the troublesome stream again in the light of the setting sun, this time there was no hesitation at all, for they followed him, every one. Oh, I wonder if Christ our shepherd divine doesn't work in the self-same way by taking the dear little lambs to draw the sheep that have gone astray. Of times he has tried, yes, so very long, to get us to follow his call. And when everything fails, he takes to himself the tiniest lamb of all. To punish us, no, he loves us so much that he died for our sins to atone. But he hoped when our lambs were all safe in the fold, that the sheep would follow him home. And you know, the following day, at ten minutes to five, Exactly the same time as Thomas, only nine days later, we Wednesday too went home to be with the Lord. I remember that day making our way, or that evening making our way around the roundabouts to go home. And through the words of that poem, God was still talking to me and he said, 
to punish you, no, Phyllis, because I love you so much that I died for your sins to atone. But he hoped when our lambs was all safe in the fold that we would follow them home. And, you know, we got home to our bungalow that night and there was no one there, just a light on in the hall. I remember looking on the carpet where Wensley was nine days earlier. And I remember going into the living room and Hartford will tell you then about the change in him. And that night he said to me, come on, he says, and we'll just sing Jesus loves me. And that night the both of us sat or stood up at the fire and Hartford was holding his Bible and we sang Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so that little ones to him belong. They are weak, but we are strong. And you know, it's very difficult uh, re going through this all. And next month, it's exactly 30 years and I know I'm still crying, but I can't help it. I love them so much. But I'm not 30 years away from them. I'm 30 years closer to being with them. And if you have a loved one in here tonight, a loved one that has died, that has belonged to you, don't you look at it like it's so many years back. You look at it like you're going every day. Every night I used to pull the curtains and say, it's another day over. And every day you're getting closer to being with them. And I know where they are. They're no harm from they left me. And they've been basking in God's sunshine from they left me. You know, it's my time's up for speaking. And it's not easy cramming us all into a certain time. Hartford talks a lot less than me, so maybe five or six months will do him. But let me say that God blessed us so much. You know, ten years after we lost Thomas on Wensley, the Lord blessed me with, on Hartford with another son. And he's here tonight, Matthew. And Matthew's married a lovely Christian girl, Kira, And they're expecting their first baby in March. And it's so exciting. But I'm pleased to say that Matthew and Kira know the Lord as their own special saviour. And you know, I don't know any of you personally in here tonight. But I can highly recommend them. I couldn't have came through anything that we come through without the Lord. And even this 30 years, he has carried us. And he's been there at every step of the way. You know, you'd be an absolute fool tonight to walk out through them doors without the Lord Jesus in your heart. You'd be a fool tonight to put your head on the pillow and go to sleep and take a chance that you might waken up in the morning. What if God calls about two o'clock? I wonder, are you ready? If he called about five, are you ready? And you know something? Do you see if you're saved in here tonight? Don't just suffer or have this all to yourself and just keep it to yourself. You need to be speaking to other people. You promised to serve the Lord. And you need to be telling other people they need to be saved. Because that's what we need to be doing. Because one day we're going to stand before the king. We'll not be able to speak. But the Lord Jesus will step forward. And he'll say, God, this is what so and so done for me. You'll not get a chance to speak. 
But I hope and pray that God can say back to you, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thanks very much for listening. And Hartford will finish. I'll not be as long as me. Hello, everybody. <laughs> um, it's a pleasure to be here. It's an honour. Um, I felt more at home in the last place because that was a chicken house, and I'm a chicken farmer. And uh, but this is a beautiful hall. You seem so far away. Um, I'm going to read a few verses, just a wee verse of scripture, and, and then I'm going to tell you about the change in my life. I'm not going to tell you about the old, the old me. There's no point. But if if I don't tell you a bit of the old me, then you'll think I've always been good. No, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. And that's how I can stand up here and tell you about Jesus. It's in Philippians 1, verse 21. It says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wait not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Amen. Uh, I'm the youngest of six, and the best looking out of the six, but in the matter. But uh, we were out in the farm, and as I tell you, we grew broiler chickens. And uh, But growing up on the farm, well, that was a special blessing. But uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to speed it on a bit. I was, I've done the things I shouldn't have done. Then the Bible says we've all done that. Even if you broke one rule, you're still a sinner. It doesn't matter. And that was me. I've smoked, I've drunk, I've done all, of course, I've used the Lord's name. Out of but I met Phyllis, and, and she talked about being saved. And I, I thought that was crazy. She had done nothing wrong. If there's a God in heaven, even if there is a God, or if there's a heaven or a hell, I didn't believe anything. And uh, if there was a heaven, why would he not let me in? And if there was a hell, well, why would he send me there? And that was the way he looked at it. And then we got married, and, and Thomas come along. And then it wasn't until we found out that he was handicapped in my heart. I cursed God. Even though I didn't even believe there was one. Not stupid. And then whenever Ford come along, well, I believed it was just good luck. Luck's a curse word, by the way. No such thing. And then whenever Wensley come along, I would actually curse God out loud, not just in my heart. I could mind our minister coming in and telling me that God loved me. I don't know where I got the strength back from hitting him. That's how crooked and cross I was. What did he know? 
our boys could just roll on the floor. If you think this is easy, no, it's not. I've had people say at the door, you have a great testimony. Would you want one like it? No, you wouldn't. It's not easy. As Phyllis has said, in three weeks' time, it'll be 30 years. You have no idea how many tears we have cried over them. And even tonight, I miss them. But I know where they are. And I'm here tonight to make much of Jesus, what he's done in my life. We buried our boys, as Phyllis has told you. But God spoke to me in a dream the night that Thomas was buried. We buried him on a Thursday, the 16th of November. And God spoke to me that night. It was just me and Phyllis in the bungalow on our own. And we got the big tin of photographs out and just went down to bed and cried ourselves stupid. And God spoke to me in a dream that he was coming back. And the dream was as real as you are in front of me now. And I wakened in the middle of the night and the sweat was sitting on my chest. And it was in November. And I wakened Phyllis to say, Phyllis, get up, it's coming back. And she tried to console me. She says, what is it? She says, coming back for me. It's the first time, and I was 30. It's the first time in my life I was ever really scared. I actually trembled. And I got up, and I smoked, and I drunk coffee till I could wait no longer. And I phoned a man that used to teach me in school. You see, there was something different about him. He was genuine. He was the real thing. It just wasn't a collar and a jab. He told me down the phone and I rang him and I told him that Thomas had died. I told him Wensley was in hospital. And then I told him about my awful dream. And he said to me, he says, he, boy, that's not a dream, that's a nightmare. He says, see, that's God trying to speak to you. I said, now, Tom, what, what, what are you talking about? His name was Tom Somerville. He used to teach me in the intermediate in Lurgan. And he said, man, dear, what are you talking about? He said, look, I'm sure you'll be in Craig Alvin today. I'll come in and see you. And he came into the wee ward, and we were in the wee room. And, and he stayed a while, and he was going to leave. And he prayed with us, and he was going to leave. And he said, have you two been up here all morning? I said, hey, Tom, well. He said, Tyler, come over with me out to my house. I'll get you a wee cup of tea. It'll get you out of here for half an hour, and I'll bring you straight back again. And I agreed to that. I never was in his house in my life. And I hated school, by the way. <laughs> and uh, we went into the house and, and, and he sent Mary into the, into, into the, into the kitchen and made a cup of tea. And we were sitting on the wee sofa in the wee living room. And, uh, and he says, you know, you're about fellas in heaven. I looked at him. Say, 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 certainly Tom the man, the, the, Thomas is in heaven. He says, hey, you know, he never spoke a bad word. He never, he never even had a bad thought. And the next thing he said to me, he said, Hertford, you know, if you ever want to meet him again, 
you'll need to be born again. He said, he said, you need to be saved. I said, hey, Tom, I've heard all this old crack before. He said, did you ever think about getting saved? He said, Tom, it never entered my head. I'm honest with you. He said, did you ever, you know, you could get saved today. He said, just like a, uh he says, just a moment in time. It's a moment in time. Say, Tom, this, if, if, could you guarantee that if I got this Jesus business you talk about in my heart, could, could you guarantee that I'll meet my Thomas again? Oh, he says, it's a guarantee. It's a hundred percent guarantee. Oh, he says, well, Tom, I tell you to do, talk no more. I, I want this Jesus business in my heart that you talk about. And there and then, in Tom's house, on my knees, I asked the Lord Jesus to come into my heart. That was the 17th of November, 89. I'll never forget it. And uh, we stayed in his house for a while, and he took us back to the hospital, and we came home. And then late that night, we came home to the house, and went down to the bedroom again with the tin and the photographs. Do you know this? If the Lord himself had come through the bedroom door and had said to me, Hertford, what you done today was a load of nonsense. Forget about it. It's a lot of load of nonsense. I wouldn't have believed him because I knew I was changed. You couldn't have Jesus in your heart and him not let you know. You'll know. I will think I'm saved. That's a load of nonsense. That's Irish. If Jesus is in your heart, you'll know. We're talking here about the person that made this world living in your heart. You'll know. Because I knew I was changed. And that's why I'm here tonight. To try and convince you that you need him too. I can't save you, but I can point you to the one who can. I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. The Lord did come and take away Wansla. I used to say that God loved Thomas so much he gave him company while he was here. And then he come and he took him to heaven. And he took his wee lifetime chum home too. Thus loving somebody. Have you anybody in the glory? If they could speak to you now, what would they say? I'll get saved later, will you? Why not tonight? The book says tomorrow's promise to nobody. I want to give glory to Jesus about the change he made in my life. I know the time's nearly gone. I used to smoke from us about 11 or 12, and it was only one or two in the day, to try and be the big fella. 
And then before long, I was on 20 a day. You know, before, whenever I was right up to the last, I was on 40 embassy red a day. God took the desire away. That's power. I didn't need no patch. Nicorette or vaporizers or whatever you want to call And then I used to drink a bottle of beer from I was about 13 or 14 to be the big fella. And then it got more and more. It used to be I would have went down to the Legion and done it alone and had one thought in my head and that was to get clean out of my head. To try and forget about the problems I had. See, Sunday morning at a sore head, my money was away. And I still had my problems. I've never had the square bottle to my lips since. That's 30 years. And then the biggest change of them all is my tongue. I used to curse. I could have just went over the whole alphabet of it. And then I'd have come in if it was a good day or a bad day. I'd have had the Lord's name in there or something went right or something went wrong. And fellas used to give after him. I sure didn't even know I'd done it. The Bible says no man can tame his own tongue. The next day after I was saved, I knew my tongue had changed. That's different. Your tongue lays in a wet place and it'll slip. It's God controls you. You have them in here. And it's not that you're out there and you hear somebody by this, I'll do this, I'll do that. That's my best friend you're talking about. If I went down the street and I said, by Geordie Best, I'll do this, and by Geordie Best, I'll do that. Hey, boy, that's, I idolized that man. I'm sure he's only a drunk. We're talking here about Jesus. What does he mean to you? Are you going to go home tonight without him? I'll do it some other day. I've told you it mightn't come. Don't be a fool. This wee country is in a complete disaster. Imagine our wee country on Tuesday morning you'll be able to rip a wee baby apart. God have mercy on us. Stella Creasy and Connor McGinn, two evil, evil people. But God can save them. He can either open their heart or else he can open the ground and swallow them up. Because it's them that's brought this into our wee country. I hope the Lord has mercy on them. But I hope there's a change. Don't you go home tonight without Jesus if you've any sense. And thanks for listening.